Great Patient One Chapter 25 Read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott Achan and Nick have finally traversed the Himalayan foothills from Tansen and arrived, utterly exhausted, back on the flatlands. Chapter 25 Once Upon a Time Achen Suchito March 28th Up before dawn and struggling on after a hard night on the sand. Familiar stuff, the stiffness and cold work out of the bones within an hour, then the mind stumbles out of grogginess with spasms of lust for food and tea, querulous speculations over how far it would be before the promised land, and sketchy diatribes against the incompetence and insensitivity of the leader, the politics of a pilgrimage. It's just the painful defences that the mind makes against pain, just the blisters again. Sometimes you just have to wrap your heart around your mind and hold it close. And there was Nick up front with the sun hat he'd bought in Tanzen. It was one you could turn inside out, one side white with love printed across its front, the other side kind of grey-green, sporting the word power. I'd look up and notice how they changed with the hours. Easy slogans, difficult realisations. But listen, if you're coming this way, follow the advice of the locals. These mountain people know their trails. Unlike the people of the Ganges Plain, Nepalis must have done a lot of travelling on foot. There's no other way until recently. And they have a long tradition of porters. When they say a trail is difficult or long, believe them. In fact, add to it, treble it. Yesterday morning, a farmer had told us that Arancola was four hours' walk away. Eight hours later, we were stumbling into a chai shop on a trail just before it entered the gorge, with Arancola nowhere in sight. Then we came across a band of porters bearing enormous baskets that extended from their heads to below their knees, the whole thing supported by a band around their heads. Some were barefoot, some just had simple rubber thongs on their feet, but they were hauling construction material, tiles and lengths of piping, up from Arancola to some remote settlement. One look at them told me that we were in a different league here. As for us, worn out beyond feeling, we eventually spent the night by the river just beyond the thundering gorge. After that, I was for checking the route out in more detail. Those intestinal flora had granted me the wits to do that. So that, after emerging from the gorge and arriving three hours later at Aruncola, and after slumping into a barb with refrigeration and, hallelujah, chilled mango juice, and after contemplating the wall with trail-numb blankness, and downing one, 
than another of those blessed fruities. I got to checking things out with the locals. It was a hunch that got me talking to one of the lads. He had a Buddha medallion on a thin chain around his neck, but it was a good move. After some preliminaries, I showed him the paper with the name of our expected host in Tamaspur, S.B. Muller. He's here, said the lad in Nepali. His house is here. So that saved us a frustrating walk to Tamaspur. Actually, one of S.B. Muller's houses was in Arancola. It was an engineering shop with a couple of rooms above it. It was his workplace. His real home, inherited from his family, was a farmhouse in the old village of Tamaspur. But there was no money in farming cereals. We had the meal in a room above the shop, served by Mr. Muller and his wife, They looked like they were in their thirties, maybe. She still had the lithe figure and unadorned beauty of a young woman. Difficult to believe she'd given birth to three children. He looked a little older, bespectacled and relaxed in denim shorts and a t-shirt. After the meal, he took the rest of the day off and wandered with us through the Saal groves down to Tamaspur, talking most of the way. He was well-informed and an easy speaker, an old school friend of Chatra Raj. We talked about farming and sal forests, about a possible route through Chitwan Park, and about religion and meditation. His chief concern, however, was politics. He'd been active in local politics for 17 years, being actually 44 years old and had just failed to be nominated as the representative of the Nepali Congress Party for the area in the forthcoming elections. The election was due in June. It would only be the second one in Nepal to use a system of political parties. The country had been teetering between democracy and despotic rule for more than a century. Firstly, the monarchy had been sidelined by a dictatorship of hereditary prime ministers, of the Rana family between 1846 and 1951. Then there was a rebellion that restored the monarchy as head of state, but with a parliament of sorts. However, King Mahendra abolished that in 1960, replacing it with a partyless system of panchayats, or local, district and national councils, of which S.B. Mala had been a member. In 1990, things had shifted again through another rebellion to a set-up of a constitutional monarchy with political parties. Hence, slogans and posters were much in evidence. As a lot of people couldn't read, the parties had adopted logos which were emblazoned in red paint on whatever wall would support them. A sun for the communists, a cow for Congress, a tree for somebody else. However, for all of SB's concern for the welfare of the people, politics all seemed remote to me as we sat around in the late afternoon sun. It was difficult to see much to organise in the blue sky and the lazy, gentle day. Easy to forget the harsh poverty, illiteracy and high mortality rate of the mountains 
an alarming rise in population and destruction of the environment. Even Espy's politics was of a ruminative, rather than fiery sort, delivered reflectively as he fingered the belly button just paunching out between his shirt and his shorts. He didn't seem to have cultivated enough righteous indignation to make it in politics. But he was a key figure in the district. His family had moved into this area shortly after it was made habitable in the 1950s. They must have had some influence and wealth to acquire such a large tract of farmland. Perhaps they were remotely descended from the Mala kings of Nepal's medieval golden age. It was the feeling of the benevolent country squire about him, the gentle hospitality and courtesies of his wife, quietly arranging a suitable place in a garden pavilion for us to stay. In the evening, local people came to seek his advice and hang out around what was the biggest house of the village. And he took it all in as part of his social duty, with the political sensitivity of a bygone age. Nick Scott The Little Red Diary has 29th morning Nick's to Bazaar on Espy's Chinese Phoenix bicycle. I remember that. It was an old-fashioned sit-up-and-beg bicycle with big soft tyres and a sprung seat so that the occasional tree root on the path was a slight sigh as I rode over it. Most of the path was sandy and smooth and I sailed through the sail forest, patches of dried leaves crackling under the wheels. The trees were so regularly spaced and even aged and with nothing growing in the gloomy light beneath that it was more like a fairy story forest than the real thing. However, I'm hazy about why I went to the bazaar and what I bought there. I must have been seeking supplies for our forthcoming journey through the Royal Chitwan National Park. The park is the most famous wildlife reserve in Nepal, if not the whole of the Indian subcontinent, home to tiger and leopard, and one of only two places in the world containing the mythic Indian one-horned rhino. It is also one of the few places you can still see the kind of habitats which would have once covered the entire Ganges plain. The forest, with tall grassland beside the rivers, containing the wildlife the Buddha would have known. That's why we'd come to Tamaspur to cross into Chitwan, as Chacharaj had suggested his friend, S.B. Mala, would be able to help us. S.B. said he could arrange a boat across the river that lay between us and the park. According to my old map, there was a road on the far side that led east through the park. Espy was not so sure about this, though. He had never been across the river himself, but villagers had told him the road was little used. When I got back, we had a meal on the lawn of the house. I clearly remember that, because I became so dismayed at the arrangements that had now been made for our journey. All I'd wanted was a boat across the river, but a large cooking pot was brought out, and then a small sack of rice. I protested that I now had all the supplies, but I was told not to worry. These things were for our guides. 
two village lads who were coming with us to show us the way. The last thing I wanted were some local guides. Having had so many experiences of travelling with inexperienced guides in the third world. However, however, I reckon that Ajahn Suchito would cite my last refusal to listen to local advice when coming through the mountains. And anyway, we were guests, and SB was unhappy letting us go alone. These two lads wanted to visit Barapur, he explained, and they could get there by walking through the park so it was no problem. We were introduced, and I had to accept them. The last part of the expedition to arrive was an enormous marrow, which was given to the guides by the Mala mother, who lived in the Tamaspur house, and who had presided over the meal. Then we all walked down to the river, and our host negotiated with some of the tribal people that lived by fishing to ferry us across. After the haggling in Nepali, I produced the money and then we got into the boat, which sank to a few inches from the gunwales. The fisherman pushed us off with one bare foot in the water while kneeling in the back. Then he picked up his long pole to punt us across. We went downstream with the fast flow of the river as we crossed, and I can also recall this scene well. In the same way that Ajahn Suchito can describe the detail inside a temple we only glanced at, I still remember all the wildlife and what it was doing. The tales we tell are filtered by our interests. Across the river a small flight of Brahmani ducks took off, their wings breaking the water into fine droplets, calling in alarm as they went. Beyond them, above a slight bank, was tall grassland, and beyond that was primary, untouched rainforest. The forest was fast. It rose before us, covering low, undulating hills until reaching the light blue sky. We must have gone half a mile down the big river in getting across, with me scanning the water for river dolphins and gharial, a strange, narrow, snouted species of crocodile, both of which I knew still occurred here. It was the opposite direction to the way we wanted to go, but I didn't care about that. It would just be more of this fabulous-looking forest to walk through. We landed on a sandy inlet, where a stream came down to the river, and scrambled out, passing our luggage ahead of us. The fisherman then pushed off, letting the rapid current take his craft, and quickly disappeared downstream, leaving us alone. Only then did we realise what we'd let ourselves in for. The grass towered above us, at least ten foot high, and the jungle beyond was so filled with a dense understory as to be impenetrable. I did try pushing my way inland along the stream, but even that was impossible. There was no choice but to walk beside the river, which further on was abutted by a small cliff with the jungle nearly overhanging it, leaving little room for us. Someone in the village had said that it was two to four hours to a jeep road, presumably the one shown on my map. But how did we get to it? We were also now realising that our guides had no English, understood little Hindi, and were apparently as uncertain of what they were doing 
as we were. As we set off, they did take the lead, but they were a comic sight. They carried the big cooking pot, stuffed with a sack of rice, between them in a woven plastic shopping bag as they struggled along and took turns carrying the enormous marrow under one arm. Besides that, they each only had a small shoulder bag. I hoped they had something in those bags for the night. The wide river we were struggling beside is known in Nepal's mountains as the Kali Gandaki, but in Chitwan they call it the Narayani. In India it becomes in turn the Gandak, which would cross by ferry when we first entered Bihar, where it was slow moving and brown from all the silt. Here it flowed more swiftly, and while just as opaque, the colour was a swirling milky blue. The low range of hills it ran at the base of are called the Siwiliks, which in comparatively recent times have begun to rise out of the plains. In several places this range has caught and bent the big mountain rivers, creating enclosed valleys that end with the river turning back south through a gorge. These valleys are wide and flat and are effectively part of the Terai, but cut off by the rising hills. Chitwan is the largest. It is triangular in shape with a base 80 miles from east to west and at its greatest width from the Siwaliks north to the Mahabharat Lek of 20 miles. Because the river is so fast flowing, the material deposited here is coarser than that left out on the plain. Where we crossed it was on a deeper channel, hard against the hills, but as we moved east it was more spread out, with bars of shingle appearing. Further on we could see islands in the river, some of them large and covered in trees, and large tracks of gravel turning to grassland. Amidst this vast natural scene, we were a strange sight. Two lads struggling along with a ludicrous shopping bag and an enormous marrow, followed by a giant scarecrow of a monk, robes flapping off him and an old tattered bag on his shoulder, and at the back, the mad professor who got them into all of this, agog at everything he saw, pulling a pair of battered binoculars up to his eyes every time something appeared, and then suddenly bending to flick manically through a small book. I was so engrossed in it all that I twice fell flat on my face, once nearly tumbling into the river. But it was all so wonderful. There were habitats as described in my ecological textbooks. This was how nature had once worked, when it had been left to its own. The newly exposed river gravel was covered in flowers and small grasses. Older gravel areas had become giant grassland up to 20 feet in height, and this in turn was being invaded by groves of young acacia trees, and so on its way to become riverine forest. Here was the whole natural process whereby nature converts newly deposited river gravel eventually to mature forest. But it was also going backwards in time too. There were places where the river was cutting back into it again, gravel beds that were eroding, 
and islands with cliffs and toppling trees, which with the next rainy season would fall and be washed away. The natural succession was actually cyclical, so that although each of these habitats was transitional, each was always going to be here somewhere. Towards the end of the day, there was a deep crackling call from above us, and I whirled round to get a sight of two great pied hornbills sailing majestically across the canopy. Gigantic black and white birds with bright yellow enormous double bills, as big as their bodies. Their wing beats produced a deep drone that continued after the brief sight of them, echoing above us as they sailed away across the forest in search of trees and fruit. They are the largest of the hornbills, and now very rare. They need big areas of untouched mature forest to breed, and there is little of that left. For the mad scientist, just that one sighting made all the stumbling along the riverbank worthwhile. I did shout out to the gaunt monk up ahead, but he looked the wrong way and missed them. Shortly after that we stopped. We were exhausted. But despite having travelled for more than four hours, there was still no sign of the road, and it would soon be dark. As the guides collected wood to start a fire, the two of us sat on the river bank looking north. The hard work was over for the day. We could sit there and take in the beauty of our surroundings. The setting sun had turned the distant cloud-draped mountains salmon pink, and in front of us an Indian river turn made one last attempt to fish the wide river, flapping along with its head down, beak pointing intently at the water. And from behind us came the noise of the jungle, churring crickets, droning insects, bird calls, and the distant barking of a deer. In that mellow state that comes with evening, I began to think that having the guides wasn't such a bad thing. They could make tea while we sat here, enjoying the wilderness. Behind us, the guys had felled a small tree, and they were now chopping furiously at the wood. They'd already got an adequate fire of branches burning, but they weren't content with that. Thwack! 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 Crash! Another small tree came down, and they were being dragged straight onto the fire. Eventually, they had an enormous bonfire, with their pot perched high on top, between two small tree trunks. It was giving out so much heat, we had to shift down the bank for protection. At least the pot was soon boiling, and I took our tea and sugar over to make tea. The two guides had no mugs, so I gave them mine to share, and returned to try to enjoy the view again. But tea didn't stop the activity, as I'd hoped. They put the pot back on the fire to cook the rice, while one of them returned to cutting down more small trees with their machete. We retreated to a grass knoll, a good hundred yards from all the commotion. But it was still difficult to enjoy a night in the wild, when there was a raging inferno nearby, with two lads chopping, one at trees 
the other at an enormous marrow. We did our best. We set up our small shrine, did some chanting, and then sat in meditation. But we only managed that for ten minutes. Sahib, Sahib. We opened our eyes. The guides had come to ask us to return. The big fire, they explained, was to scare off tigers. They wanted us near it. But I suspect that was not to protect us, but to protect them. Later, having failed several times to move us, they left their fire to sleep on our grass knoll. And of course they brought nothing for sleeping either. Ajahn Suchito had to loan them his blanket, which they huddled together under. Next morning, we'd seen enough of our guides to realise that we had to decide on the route. They obviously had no idea where they were going. After a breakfast of our supplies shared with them, as they were now down to a cooking pot, some rice and a shopping bag, I started by taking us away from the river, walking into the forest along a stream bed with the guides hacking at low branches to get us through. After twenty minutes we found the partially overgrown track and a small collapsed bridge that had once crossed the stream. Although the track was now unused, it was still possible to follow it in the direction we wanted. The walking was now much easier. The old track gave us level ground, and despite having to clamber around the occasional fallen tree, we began to make much better progress. We could also relax, let the guides walk ahead again, and take in the forest. We were now in real jungle. It was again dominated by Sal, this time with occasional teak plus a few other tree species, but it was very different from the planted forest that I'd cycled through. There was so much undergrowth, plants with large mottled leaves, like the house plants we grow at home, cycads and ferns, lots of seedling trees, and a mass of tangled vines climbing up into the canopy. Although we could see into it for no more than a few yards, there was a lot of noise coming out of it. The strange hoots, whistles and screeches of unknown birds and animals lurking in the depths and the continuous drone of insects from the canopy above. Suddenly, up ahead, one of the guides stopped. They started jabbering to each other. Then, when we arrived, they pointed at the ground. There were pug marks on the track ahead, going in the same direction as us. Tiger! One of them indicated that he could smell tiger, and he was right too. There was the rancid smell of a cat. And there, to one side, was a freshly clawed trunk of a young tree. A tiger had been this way very recently, marking its territory. I was excited, but the guides were much more than that. They wanted to go back. They were so petrified that one of them was visibly shaking. We tried with Ajahn Suchito's Hindi to persuade them to go on, but they would have none of it. Neither of them had ever seen a tiger. All they had were village stories, 
and they were frightened out of their wits. But we couldn't go back. Now we had at last found the only route through this jungle, so we had to follow it. Arjun Suchito suggested that we went on while they went back, but that frightened them just as much. Eventually we compromised. We all went on, but we had to walk in front while our guides trailed a hundred yards behind us. The pug marks ran ahead of us and were certainly fresh. When we came to a stream, they covered the other footprints of small animals and birds. Now I had got the scent, I could smell it all the time. It was early enough in the morning for a tiger still to be hunting, and the vegetation was so dense that we could easily come upon it by surprise. Just the situation where a tiger might attack to defend itself. I kept repeating to myself how to behave if one sees a tiger. Stop dead and let the tiger do the moving. If you move forward, it may feel threatened, and if you retreat, it thinks you're prey. And I have to admit, I let Ajahn Suchito go in front. He didn't seem so scared. He never has been one for worrying about danger. After an unbearably long twenty minutes, we came to a stream where the pug marks turned off, showing the tiger had headed down the river. We could relax. The guides were jubilant and now sauntered along at the front, full of themselves. They were chatting again too. They had been utterly silent behind us. It was an hour later when I thought I heard distant voices. I couldn't believe it at first, but sure enough, we then saw some kind of camp through the forest down near the river. Thinking that we could ask for directions, we made our way towards it. There were thatched buildings and a few locals working amidst the trees. One of them scurried off and then, Hi, do you guys want a Coke? She was blonde and in her late teens. Rosy red cheeks, college sweatshirt, jeans and sneakers and as American as blueberry pie. She looked like she should be doing cheers for the college football team. Are you guys lost? We weren't lost. We were stunned. Eventually we managed to mumble something affirmative and then follow her, still mesmerised, as she added, Hey, you look real pooped. Come on over to the bar. We were guided between neatly thatched roofs with tents under them to a large circular stone building also topped with thatch. It was also new and so well made that it felt totally out of place, like we were walking into a film set or out of one. The paths were neatly swept and there were little signs everywhere with lanterns to light them at night. The larger building was constructed elegantly and with sophistication using local materials wood seating and tables, cobbled floor, low stone walls 
to create a large meeting area with a bar and a central log fire. We were at Temple Tiger, our hostess explained, a camp for upmarket tourists. Her name was Catherine. She had family who knew the owner, and she was just over from the States for a vacation working at the camp. She gave us cold Pepsi, then real coffee with a jug of cream and fresh bread rolls with jam and butter. We were directed to showers in a hut which had hot water, fragrant soap, shampoo and large fluffy towels. But the final twist, the bit that left the mind reeling, was when Catherine said, Gee, it's amazing to meet a Buddhist monk here. Theravada Buddhism was one of my majors at college, and I was hoping I'd meet a real monk. Okay, what's the chances on that one? Sometimes things happen with an element of the miraculous like that. They seem a confirmation of what you are doing. Of course, they can be dismissed as coincidences. But even so, they still have something else about them that leaves you wondering, with the hairs on the back of your head tingling. It was Catherine who sorted out the guides for us, who by now were looking embarrassed and very out of place. She arranged a lift for them to Meghuli, the nearest village outside the park. Over more coffee we told her our story and where we were going. She offered to put us up that night, but we reluctantly declined. That night was the full moon, and we had already intended to spend it in the wild, somewhere where we might see wildlife like tiger. So instead, she arranged for me to talk to one of their young Nepali rangers, named Dill, who suggested, with a James Cagney drawl, a place just an hour further along. She also gave us the name of an English friend, working at a similar establishment called Tiger Tops, where we could stop for breakfast the following morning. The only thing not utterly perfect in the whole incident was the meal. Catherine only asked us if we wished to eat half an hour before midday, so we had to make do with what she could find, supplemented with things I was carrying. I knew if I had mentioned it earlier she would have produced us a proper feast, but somehow it felt wrong to ask for anything. You have to be careful when you are around small miracles. We left in the late afternoon. Ajahn Suchito blessed the workers' shrine, and Catherine thanked us with an embarrassing sincerity for visiting. The old track was now well used and easy to follow. It ran along the edge of the jungle, and we could look out over the Rapti River, a tributary of the Gandag, to a vast swathe of tall grassland. This was the core of the Royal Chitwan Park. It's almost all grassland, with just the occasional island of trees, and the odd cut-off river Oxbow, which make watering places. This was what I was really looking forward to seeing. Such grassland is now so rare, and it is the most productive of ecosystems, especially for large animals. 
the two evolve for each other. Grass can keep producing its long, narrow leaves, no matter how much they are eaten by animals, as they grow from the base. And the grazing of the animals keeps trees from establishing that would shade out the grass. Because the two have evolved together, they need each other. Without the big animals, the grassland turns to woodland. And without the grassland, the big animals have nothing to feed on and soon disappear. And that is the problem for conservation. Because riverine grassland, such as this, is also very productive when it is ploughed up for crops. So that it is always the first habitat to disappear. The land beside the big rivers of the Ganges Plain was once all such grassland. The Korean monk, Hai Chol, who came on pilgrimage to the holy places in 727 AD, wrote an account of which most has been lost, but amongst the few scraps that remain is a telling reference to the river Gandak near Kushinagar. He describes how many pilgrims lost their lives there to rhino and tiger. So even then, halfway between the Buddha's time and our own, this kind of habitat must have extended all the way down the Gandak. By the time the British came, it only remained in a few pockets where rulers had kept shikars, hunting areas, and in one broad band right across the base of the Himalayas. The Terai was always the most difficult land to cultivate. Much of it was swamp. The other parts were heaped-up alluvial mounds with water table too far down and the area had rampant malaria. The last of the Terai to remain completely untouched was the area within Nepal. This was due to Nepalese government policy. The Ranas, the hereditary prime ministers, kept the swampy malaria-ridden Terai as a barrier between them and the British. It was also somewhere to hunt, and they managed it to provide the grandest hunting parties in the world, leaving different areas untouched for years, with penalties of death for anyone caught poaching. They invited rulers and other dignitaries to come and shoot. Chitwan was the best, equivalent to Africa's Serengeti, there was so much wildlife here that in one shoot in 1938 they took 120 tigers, 28 rhinos and 27 leopards. So what went wrong? People, of course. Too many to be able to leave the Terai untouched. The Ranas fell in 1951. There was great unrest in the country and the main reason was the need for land. So the new government had to provide land to appease the people, and it turned to the Terai to provide it. Displaced hill people were resettled there, and with the help of the United States, the malaria was eradicated. Within 20 years, the Nepalese Terai was transformed into the country's granary, producing 70% of the food grains. In that transformation, much of Chitwan's grassland and forest disappeared under the plough.
and the wildlife in the rest was hunted and poached by the new settlers. By the 1960s, Barasinga, the wild water buffalo and wild elephant had become extinct and the rhino was about to go the same way. In 1963, Chitwan National Park was proposed to save what remained. We didn't get to the place that Dill had recommended until it was dark. It had been a humid afternoon, sapping our strength, and we were pleased to stop. Still, Dill was right. The place was ideal. A stream came down out of the hills and created a steep-sided valley, which Dill called a nullah. This one was dry and formed an amphitheatre where it spilled out over a bank and into the river that flowed at its base. Beyond the river was the sea of grassland. The grassland had been burnt in recent months so that much of it was only a few feet high, but there were still pockets of unburnt grass which would provide stalking sites for tigers. The tigers would be after the deer that Dill said would venture out at night to graze on the new green shoots of the regrowing grass. So we could sit there, our backs against a large boulder, steep banks on either side leading up into the forest, and enjoy a wide vista. If there was anywhere we were going to see a tiger by the full moon, this was it. Arjun Suchita had told me earlier about his previous experience of tigers. It was on a visit he made to a national park in Thailand as part of a trip with a Japanese Theravada monk who was known for his fierce application to meditation practice. So fierce that even Arjun Suchito had been concerned that he would not be able to keep up. However, most of the journey had been more like a pleasant holiday than a harsh Dutanga trip except, that is, for the nights in the park. The Japanese monk had suggested they spend several nights in a place particularly known for tigers, and that each of them, the two monks and their accompanying novice, should be completely on their own. Arjun Suchito had been left in the blackness of a moonless night, seated on his small sitting cloth, surrounded by prime tiger habitat. He told me that the Japanese monk's intention to use fear to aid wakefulness had worked wonderfully. Arjun Suchito spent the whole night bolt upright. Every slight rustle in the grass he imagined as a tiger. He said he felt completely exposed, like a meatball waiting on a plate. Then, near midnight, he heard something approaching from behind. It was large. He could distinctly hear the footfalls. It was getting close. He could hear the breathing. Smell an animal. He was petrified. His body was frozen with fear. And then something touched him in the small of his back. And in that moment, he prepared to die. 
when, in the next moment, nothing happened, his mind exploded with relief and joy. I roared with laughter as he described this so well. He never found out what it was. The animal turned and padded away, and he was left pondering his mortality. Having given up his life, he said, he felt strangely free of concern about death. On our full moon night, I got to find out what he meant about fear keeping one wide awake. I had wanted to do the sitting there because we might see tigers, and I kept assuring myself that a tiger would never attack two stationary human beings. But still, the same fear rose up in me. At least with the moonlight I could sit with my eyes open, scanning the grassland. The moon made the grass look silver, while the more distant trees were black. An owl came by, silently quartering the short grass. Then there was the far-off deep barking of a male larger deer. Later came alarm calls of Chital deer, possibly indicating a tiger was hunting. Mostly, though, there was nothing happening, except in my mind. Every rustle of grass or slight movement in the trees behind us would reignite the fear. Tigers don't attack humans unless they are man-eaters. The park authorities would kill any man-eaters here. Tigers won't be bothered by, by two stationary humans. Absolutely stationary. Tigers aren't a danger. Shit, what was that? <laughs> and so on. Slowly, however, with nothing happening, my mind settled, stopped worrying, and began to enjoy the tigerless night. About 1am we stopped to take a break, and I lit a small fire and brewed some tea. We were both really tired. We settled back against our rock with our tea, all thoughts of tiger forgotten. Suddenly there was the most deafening loud roar from right behind our heads, my hands shot out, throwing my tea everywhere. We both spun round to see a massive male bison rearing up right above us. It turned, charged straight up the near vertical wall of the nulla, and disappeared into the forest. I realised it must have come down the dry stream bed and been unable to see us hidden behind the rock until it was right over us. Of course, the stream bed that we'd parked ourselves in was the path used by animals coming down the river to drink. I'd been really stupid. Dill had told us to sit on the edge of the forest. Not here, but I'd been too tired to bother remembering. As it was, it could just as well have been a tiger that had found us. And startled like that, a tiger might not have turned and run. He could have killed us.
Achen Suchito. Walking across Chitwan was, for me, fairly easy. The muscular fatigue of winding up and down long, knee-crunching slopes gave way to the dullness of a humid valley. For a day or so we were in forests that had Nick poised and trembling with binoculars and lunging after things that flapped hastily out of sight. But the wildlife slowed down when we came to the grasslands. For a long while we saw very little, apart from the occasional soldier or jeep, then rhino moored in muddy ponds or occasionally drifting across the ocean of young grass in the burnt areas. You could get to within five or six metres of them, which was nice. They have such unbelievable bodies, looking like they've been clumsily assembled from parts like creatures from a pantomime or maybe the first working models for ruminant life. On the third day, Nick slowed down too to a lumbering proto-human with minimal speech faculty. At first I thought it was just that we'd only had a couple of hours sleep after the full moon sitting, that and the humidity, but even the stop at Tiger Tops, where they gave us coffee and doughnuts for breakfast, failed to pick him up then a rest for the meal in a watchtower above the grassy sea barely restored him. I started attending to him more closely, as much with the heart as with the eyes. I could feel a vulnerable human lurking beneath, despite his love and power. The need to attend to him gave me more energy and interest in what was going on. We continued on a long, straight track covered with the white petals of psalm trees. For a while the land was all very recently burnt, with blackened trunks rising out of the cinders. The humidity broke into a warm downpour, which felt good, and scented the air with the tang of burnt earth. By dusk on that third day, We'd only covered about 19 kilometres before arriving at Kasra Durbar, the park's headquarters, for the night. I was still seeing the park as a wildlife reserve, so Kasra seemed strange. For a start, Chitwan seemed to have a considerable use as a military base. We'd passed several military posts on the walk, and Kasra's use was indicated by a parade ground with soldiers drilling. Construction work was going on, but many of the buildings were in disrepair, and apart from a museum, there was very little for a visitor to see. The assistant warden fired up Nick briefly with talk on conservation, but guessing that he would soon lapse into dull vacuity, I took notes and collected what information I could for his future reference. Apart from all the stuff about rhinos and tigers and bears, Sambar, spotted deer, hog deer, barking deer, several species of wildcats and all. There was the gloom. Human pressures. They moved 22,000 people out of the valley when the park was created. Hungry people who lived off the land and now lived round the park. So there were always difficulties with people cutting for firewood and timber and grazing their water buffalo in the park. The burning of the grassland was done by the villagers to improve the grazing. The park staff allowed it, because it also maintained the grassland for the wildlife. 
poaching was negligible, thanks to the army, but now the military were established here with sizable bases. Visitors to the park brought in about 14 million Nepalese rupees per year, but only 100,000 of those rupees were allocated towards park maintenance. As it was, none of the park service's six jeeps were working, and with no money to repair them, the 350 square miles were monitored by means of one motorbike. All night, the sky was tense, convulsing with sheet lightning. No thunder, no rain. Sleep was borderline, a kind of dreamy delirium rather than a rest. Next day, Nick was so weak that I carried the food. When we stopped in another watchtower for the meal, I knew things were getting worse for him. Totally uninterested in eating, and with a few dismissive mumbles, he sprawled in a corner. I left him for an hour or so, then gradually coaxed him to have a few nuts, then a biscuit, one at a time. It was like befriending some damaged wild creature that you find huddled up in your garden shed. After three hours, we clambered down the tower's ladder and, gently now, moved on. I let the park move through me. And what was most important, things were going well. Nick Scott My memory of our walk through Chitwan becomes more and more hazy the further on we got. There was the effect of the all-night sitting, added to by the heat and the humidity of the grasslands. And then I was struck down with dysentery again. We were still walking through the kind of habitat that delighted me, but my complete lack of vitality diminished any impression it made. Of course I remember the rhinos. We got so close. We could nearly touch them, wallowing in their mud bars, with toads perched on their backs. To begin with, we were wary of the danger and would pass them without stopping, all the while checking for trees we could climb, or at least dash behind, if one should get angry. Dill had told us to find a big tree if one charged, and if there wasn't one, to stand our ground until the last moment then step out of its way. They were so slow at turning, and so stupid, he said, that if they charged past, they would just keep on going, and likely to forget what they were charging. Eventually, though, we'd pass so many without incident, and they seemed such harmless creatures, wallowing in the mud or munching at grass, that we got more confident, and would walk up to the side of a mud hole, and stand there watching them. Ajahn Suchito commented that, from behind, their thick loose skin with large warts on it looked like a gigantic pair of spotted bloomers. The other memory I still have is of being struck by how tall the unburnt patches of grass were. They formed a dense wall up to 20 feet high 
with tunnels shoved through it by the rhino. And how short the rhino were, five foot tall at the most, though they were nearly as broad, like rugby propped forwards. But as the day heated up, I became less interested, and the rest has faded. My memory of the next day is even worse. The only two images I have of the park are the first jeep of the day coming roaring towards us with multicoloured tourists hanging out of it, cameras at the ready for Rhino, and the watchtower where I collapsed. I recall intending to look out for sloth bears that we had been told about at the headquarters and how we had to whack them on the snout if they attacked. But I can't remember looking for them. The next memory is the village of Sara outside the park. That was because of the cold fruit juice and cold coke, the first things I'd been interested in for most of that day. The land beyond Sora had also been tall grassland and sow forest until fewer than thirty years before. A few hacked-over remnants of giant trees now stood gauntly amidst the wheat fields that stretched to the distant hills. We walked through that landscape to the main road to catch the bus to Hetura. When it came, we again clambered up onto the roof and settled amidst the luggage. The Little Red Diary now has Warm breeze, heels one mile to left, Road gradually rising to stars, Grey band of rapti to right, Finest bus ride. And it's right. The hills were the Mahabharat Leks, and we were climbing because the Rapti Valley was narrowing to a gorge that runs between them and the Siwaliks. The road went over a shoulder of the hills to avoid it. I lay on the slatted wooden roof, head resting on the luggage, and looked out across the valley, filled with dark forest, broken only by the grey line of the Rapti. There were flickers of regret that we had not walked on through the park below, but really I knew it would have been foolish. It was too hot and humid, and I was far, far too sick. I also realise now that even if I had been well enough, it would have been pushing our luck. At the time I'd assured myself that we were in little danger, that as the park had so many tourists, none of the wildlife were likely to attack humans. When I got back I told a naturalist friend that, and he snorted, telling me lots of people were killed by the few tigers left in India and Nepal, and that a close friend of his had been killed only a couple of years before. He'd been leading a bird-watching trip, and had left the party to get a photograph of an owl in a tree. He must have chanced upon a tiger, just as we might have, because when they found him, his leg had been eaten. When they developed his film, it had pictures of a tiger, first side on, pacing one way, and then the other, then turned, and much nearer, about to spring for the kill. Then there are also the sloth bears, snakes and crocodiles, to say nothing of the rhinos, which also regularly kill people. I read a book written by biologists who were studying the tigers of Chitwan Park. They felt safe enough watching a tiger 
from a distance. But every time they saw a rhino, they climbed a tree for safety. They described how a local man was killed by a rhino while they were there. He was walking down the same track we took when a rhino suddenly turned on him, charging and knocking him over as he dashed for a tree. The rhino trampled him, then tore open his stomach with its teeth, and he bled to death. All in all, we were fortunate to come out alive. The biologists also write of their concerns for Chitwan. When they were first working there in the 70s, there were still good forests outside the boundary that connected it with other tiger reserves in India. But now all that has gone, and Chitwan is effectively an island. This means that the big animals will suffer from inbreeding, and the small populations could easily be wiped out by a single catastrophe. That would be particularly disastrous for the Indian rhino, as it only hangs on in Chitwan and one reserve in India. Then there is the surrounding human population. On the evening of our first visit, as we sat looking out over the Gandak River watching the sunset, a large herd of domestic cattle appeared from the tall grassland and was driven across by a man and a boy, the cattle wading, then swimming in the deeper water, with each of the herdsmen astride one of their backs. The soldiers effectively guard the rhino from poachers with a shoot-to-kill policy, but they can hardly use that on local peasants grazing their cattle. I tell bedtime stories to my friends' young children, and the story that gets regular requests is about walking through the jungles of India and meeting the wildlife. The bit they love is, What do you do if you meet a tiger? Or a rhino? Or an elephant? Or any of the other creatures we met or might have met? It is not the instructions on what to do that so delights them, though, but the possibility of meeting these wonderful creatures. It taps into something deeper for all of us. We can find being amidst nature so uplifting, even when we are in ordinary English oak woodland, without tigers or the big wild creatures it once supported. It has a rightness about it, nature has a completeness, an at-homeness. This is where, as a species, we grew up. Not where we live now. When I tell my bedtime story, I always end with how the really, really dangerous wild creatures we have to be aware of are... And the children will look at me expectantly. Humans. I might just tell them how on the pilgrimage it was men who actually attacked us and nearly killed us, not the wild animals, but sometimes I try to explain more. Homo sapiens are such an arrogant species. We can't see how much we need the rest of nature to remain sane ourselves. The conservation movement has only managed to get a few parks put aside for the rest of the beings on this planet.
while we ourselves continue to breed like rabbits. We have gotten rid of most of the things that kept our numbers in check. Not just tigers, but snakes, malaria, cholera, and all the rest too. And now we can't restrain ourselves. What we need as a species is humility. The Buddhist suttas describe a time when the people lived in cultivated clearings beside the rivers. These were islands surrounded by the great forest, the Mahavana. The tales of the pilgrims who visited over subsequent centuries continue to refer to the forest and its wildlife. But now, as we write our tale, the Ganges plain is a sea of cultivation with just a few islands of forest and wilderness. And these have threatened. The same is now happening to the whole planet. While we increasingly enjoy nature on television, our need to become, do, make, reproduce is relentlessly consuming at an ever faster rate what nature there is left. At some point soon, we'll have to wake up. If we don't recognise within ourselves the greed, the becoming, the overbreeding, and learn the Buddha's basic lesson that we have the capacity to choose not to heedlessly always follow our conditioning, there is going to be nothing left to tell stories about.